Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The recognized symbol of excellence in sports entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, one and all, to your favorite show and mine, 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. And before we get started, I know you're going, what are you doing here? I'm filling in. That's what friends do. When one goes down, the other one comes up and steps in their place. And I am here to take the uh, about a third of the spot of Mr. Conrad Conrad. <laughs> And uh, I'd be remiss if I did this alone. I can't do this alone because nobody wants to hear from me. Everybody wants to hear from the man himself. You know him. You love him. Mr. Eric Bischoff. Eric, how are you, sir? I am doing so well. I love these shows, Shuli. I love doing them because they're fun and kind of lighthearted banter back and forth. Some obviously some serious questions, but I can't think of anybody better to do this show with than you because you i don't know man you just you don't seem to take life too seriously maybe that's part of being a comic well you know a lot a lot not a lot but a good portion of the comments or feedback that people send is not necessarily positive these days and it doesn't necessarily come from a place of like hey here's some constructive criticism it's it's the day and age of the trolls and the thing i like about this is it gives the trolls a chance to get involved rather the trolls than are people that. too, unless they're bots. Yeah. most of the time trolls are people too. That's right. That's right. So not too many shows give a voice to the trolls and, and this episode, these episodes, you know, I always love it because these people think they can dance with you and they just don't know. They don't know who, who you've been on the dance floor with the history you have. And there's nothing, nothing better than when a new gunslinger comes to town and gets put down on their ass. And I do love that. I mean, I've learned to love trolls. I love messing with them, you know, like on Twitter and stuff. I have so much fun. Yeah. And I've gotten to that point because it didn't start out that way. You know, I've been on since 2009. And initially, you know, if somebody said something negative, it's like, oh, man, I got I to gotta defend myself here. You know, and, and now it's just like, oh, man, I'm just going to have fun with this dweeb and, and, and make him twist in the wind. But let's get this show on the road, Shuli. People let's have been go. waiting. I've been late. Uh, and hello to all the people watching live. Uh, how you guys doing? Thanks for joining us. Uh, I love that uh, there's a live interaction now with uh, with fans, and and this is the way it should be, man. I mean, it's the one great thing about ad free shows is how close you are to these to these people that you watched all these years, and uh, and it continues. Conrad the genius continues. You know uh, what? You know what? Surely, what's so cool though? I love doing the show. I was talking to Steve Kaufman, uh, our producer, right before we went live. And how cool is it that we are blessed enough to be able to do something that we have fun doing and we can pay our bills with it? I mean, not a lot of people get to say that, right? Well, yeah. and also look at it from the fans' perspective. They don't have to sit outside an arena 
uh, till nightfall, freezing their butt off to say hello to uh, someone they're a fan of or get a picture or get an autograph or an interaction. This is you can do it from the comfort of your own home, just like we are. And and here's what's cool about ad free shows. I know this is a shameless plug, but I don't care. You know, right now we've got a bunch of our family members from ad free shows hanging out in San Antonio, watching us live. Denovius Mac, his whole crew, um, sent me a picture this morning with him and his lovely daughter and said, they're going to be watching live. And the, the, the every shows has brought people together. And not only do like people like me and Shivani and Ross get to develop our own relationships with fans and, and that become friends and friends that become almost like family, but we're seeing a lot of the, the, folks over at adfreeshows.com that never knew each other before just coming together and traveling around the country and supporting independent wrestling, supporting big shows like we have today in San Antonio. And it's just, for me, it's just fun to sit back and just watch how these things all come together, man. It's every shows and, and what Conrad and Conrad's team, you know, we all know Conrad is the pod father and, you know, a visionary in many respects when it comes to podcasting, but man, he's also got a great team of people behind him too. And not to mention years from now, people will look back and be like, you know, Conrad was the Woodstock of wrestling. He brought so many worlds together and people together that maybe would have never worked together or or taken a chance on something. You know, I look at Ric Flair's last match in Tennessee and how many how many people were involved from different companies, all uh, one common goal you know, to make this the best weekend possible. And they wouldn't do that for just anybody. So that says a lot about uh, Conrad. And you guys in particular, last week's episode with Buff Bagwell, I thought was such an awesome episode. I'm just curious what kind of feedback you got on on last week's episode. I, I'm telling you, Shuli, that's another thing that I'm, it's just every day I realize how many little things, sometimes they're big things, but how many things occur every single day, again, as a result of the show that, that have this downstream really positive impact either on a fan or uh, a, a, a talent, look at Marcus Bagwell and the positive responses in the support that I got tagged in on because of that show with Marcus Bagwell, I just felt really good about myself. And not about myself personally, but I felt really good that I got to be a part of this podcast and Conrad's team. And because you're doing something that has a positive effect up you. I know Mark Bagwell must have got a ton of the, the same positive response I did. And that's, man, you're giving that guy strength in a way at a time when he really needs it. And I just, it's just a beautiful thing. I don't know another way to say it. I agree with you. It's a, there's something so um, refreshing about seeing somebody who's finally got it together, you know, or at least is on that path, taking those those tough first few steps of of changing their life. You know, it's not easy. They've been doing it for decades, and uh, it's all they know. So it's a big step, and it was a powerful episode. Uh, I loved it, man. I, I I love the realer it gets, the better, in my opinion. You know. Yep, uh, well, that was real. Speaking of real, let's get to some real questions from the listeners out here. Are you ready, Eric? Late I am ready. I'm, All I'm, right. drink, I'm drinking my caffeine. I got my jug of moonshine. I'm good. Oh, this man is ready for action. Let's go. Uh, this one from Johnny Glow 
And uh, he writes, during your time as general manager on Raw, did you have any ideas pitched to Creative or Vince that would have been money, but they never were approved? No, I, you know, look, when I was general manager, great question, by the way, but when I was general manager of Raw, my role as a performer was to pretend I was a general manager of Raw. I was strictly an on-camera <laughs> Uh, opportunity for me. And it's one I'm, again, really grateful for because I had a blast doing it. It was the best decision, probably one of the best decisions I've made in my wrestling career, to be honest. Um, but I was not involved in any creative process, pitch meetings. I showed up about 11 o'clock in the morning, about two o'clock in the afternoon. I'd get a list of the segments that I was in or and the dialogue that went along with it. And then I would just wait till about the end, towards the end of the day, usually about 5.30 or 6 before I would start thinking about it because I knew it would change. I didn't want to, you know, kind of get myself ready for a scene and dialogue that I knew was going to change anyway because I didn't want to, I wanted to keep my head clear so that once I focused on what I was doing, I didn't get myself confused once I got out there live. So I'd wait till about 5, 5.30 in the afternoon and then I'd get my final supposedly final draft of what we were going to do script wise. But once, once it got to that point, the scene was pretty well set. There may be some minor variations in the dialogue, but um, once I got that, I'd go find a corner to hide in where I wouldn't be distracted, kind of put myself into that scene and into that dialogue and kind of visualize it in my head and go do it. And then I go home. That was it. It was showing up at the building hiding in a corner at about 5.30 to figure out what I was going to do and how I wanted to do it, go out and do it and go home. That was the extent of my communication when it came to creative. So the answer to that question, long-winded as it may be, was, nah, never happened. <laughs> yeah, I imagine if you presented Vince with a money idea, it's going to make money. And, and you know, he'd, I don't see him turning down a money idea. Ooh, uh, I'm going to push back a little bit on that one. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no, and that's that was always look, and this isn't a people hear this. And I'll see a headline tomorrow saying Eric Bischoff buries Vince McMahon's approach to creative. Not so. This Vince McMahon has created a multi billion dollar global media empire based on the way he wanted to do things. And I'll never criticize anybody in any line of work or any profession that is able to achieve that kind of success. I may not agree, or I may not want to participate, or I may not be able to contribute in, in his process, which was the case for me back in 2019, but it doesn't mean um, I have, I, I, I have any negative things to say about it. I just didn't fit in it or it's not my approach. But um, one of the challenges in working with Vince McMahon closely is that he can change his mind pretty quickly. You can be fully committed to something and work on it all week and be ready to go and have all the drafts of everything ready for TV on Monday, get on his jet. And by the time you land, you're starting completely over from scratch. Now that doesn't happen while I was there. It didn't happen to me regularly, but it happened more than twice. And that makes it tough. So pitching a money idea to Vince McMahon often depends can depend on what mood he has to happens to be in and how long he stays in that mood <laughs> <laughs> right right well i mean you know 
it's roll the dice with him, right? You never know. So I guess that makes it interesting. And What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Keeps you on your toes. Uh, This next question, Eric, is from After Hours FP. Uh, What was the character slash storyline you developed that you didn't realize was going to get as big as it did? And all, I hate to keep going back to this, but it's the best example there is of that question. The NWO idea. What, when, when that idea started taking shape in my head a couple of years before we actually did it, and when I say taking shape in my head, I mean there were fragments of ideas that were kind of floating around in the back of my mind. And whenever I was on a treadmill or away from the business or out for doing something physical, um, I would start thinking about some of those random fragmented ideas. And that was the case with the NWO. And then when Scott Hall became available, Kevin Nash became available, all of a sudden those kind of disparate, desperate um, fragments of ideas started coming together and forming a picture. Now, I thought it was a pretty good idea. I thought when Scott came in and Kevin came in, I went, aha, here's my opportunity. Um, again, not knowing at that time that Hulk would be the third man and all that. I st- it was going to be Sting. We all know that. And I knew it was a good idea, but I didn't have a clue, not a clue, what it would ultimately end up being. And I, th- I think if I understood the question ex- correctly, that was a, that was probably the best example. I think that's the best example ever of all time in wrestling of something. I mean, that that changed the landscape. So, yeah, that blew up for sure. Um, when Born Matt has a question. Just listened to an earlier podcast, which I love, by the way. 2023 Eric is nice, grateful, calmer, pleasant, someone you'd take home to your mother. But does 2023 Eric miss the 1997 Eric who didn't give a fuck about a thing? First of all, it would be a mistake on your part to take me home to your mother. Because <laughs> however nice you think I am, um, your mother's going to want to ravage me. I yes. am so over with mothers and grandmothers. Yeah. I'm running into some grandmothers. Now, these are 60, 50, 50, 60 year old grandmothers. They started early and they passed that gene along. So, yeah, they're kind of on the younger side of the Gilf and Good Gilf universe. Yeah. But, yeah, man, milk and so don't, do not take me home to your mother. But um, do I miss? Look, people got to realize is the character that you saw on television um, was a character. And I'm not, that's not true. I am quite a bit different than I was back in 97. I was about to say, I'm pretty much the same guy, but that's not true. I didn't know we were bullshitting people this early. In the no, morning. I'm not going to lie to myself or anybody else. No, I don't miss it, man. I, I Look, I was aggressive. I was brash. I was whatever. You want obnoxious. You can say whatever you put up, whatever you script or you want on it. I enjoyed it, but I wouldn't want I think Muhammad Ali said once that any, any any person that feels the same way about something 20 years after later hasn't grown a minute, you know, and, and I think I'm, I'm butchering that, but it's, 
the point is that if you if you don't grow and learn from successes, failures, experiences, relationships, whatever, um, I wouldn't want to be that guy. I wouldn't want to be the same today as I was in 97. I don't miss anything about it. Uh, well, my hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my face is starting to, you know what, Shuli, it's so fucking cold. Oh, I said it. I was trying not to swear in the show. It's so cold here in, in Wyoming and windy this weekend. I was telling my wife, it's like I took my dog outside for a walk the other day or yesterday. It was so cold. I'm walking into a 30 mile an hour wind. My face was frozen. I walked in and it had completely shrunk up because <laughs> of the cold. I was like, man, I look like I, this is how I looked when I was 35. And, and then your face thaws out, it melts, and it starts to hang, and gravity takes over. God, no, I'm still old as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> there I yeah, did it again, too. Look at that go. hair. Come on. Yeah, that, but still, uh, let me tell you something. The shirt, the T-shirt that we're going to make, do not take me home to your mother, is going to fly off the shelves. I and, hope so. Listen, I agree. This guy is uh, as smooth as they come, so do not bring him home to mom. Unless your mom requested you to bring her home a bang, because that's what's going to happen. This guy is a deal closer, so don't do that. Wow, um, you're, so, you're, so, you're putting pressure on me. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I've seen you work. Uh, John Blue, uh, NY Yellow, or N Yellow. Uh, how old were you when you found out horses can't breathe through their mouths? I was 37, and it was last month. <laughs> see what i mean about growing and experiencing and learning yeah. as you <laughs> um actually i didn't i didn't ever think about how horses breathed it just never it never occurred to me i guess because i've had horses i've kind of always recognized that horses use their nose primarily for scent um so i just kind of took it for granted but i don't know I never gave it much thought till now. Now I'm going to do some, now I'm going to be on the Google machine. I'm going to be Googling the internet. Yeah. Learning, think, how, learning the respiratory system of, of a horse. I think if you have his weed, it would help in this search because I don't know a sober person that has that thought cross their mind at any point. No, what an epiphany, right? What an epiphany. <laughs> yeah. If that's, if that was a big moment for you, you need bigger moments. <laughs> Have you ever seen an ad for something on social media? It caught your eye and you thought, you know what? I do want to check this out. So you click the link, decide, damn, I think I want one of these. And then I put it in my cart. I start filling stuff out. And then I see, uh, hey, this is going to cost more to ship it than what the damn thing costs. That turns out to be the number one cause of abandoned carts. Maybe you too have found yourself with a cart full of stuff that you thought better of. Once you saw the shipping charges, well, in a landscape where free and fast shipping is now the norm, it can be harder for small e-commerce businesses to compete. Keep yourself competitive with ShipStation. You see, when you use ShipStation, you can lower your shipping costs, make returns easy, and keep your customers happy. So not only is it going to save them money, but more importantly, it's going to save you time. So without you spending all that extra time working in your business, well, now you can work on your business and Eric and I set this up for Eric to ship out his new book. Grateful. Uh, Eric signed up for the free trial. He got the quick and easy setup. And I got to tell you, now's the time for you to try ShipStation. If you've been on the fence, 
You see, ShipStation makes it easy for you to grow your business by handling your orders from every marketplace in just one dashboard. ShipStation effortlessly integrates anywhere and everywhere you sell online. Yes, that includes Amazon, Etsy, eBay, Shopify, and more. You can manage every order from one simple dashboard. You can automate your routine shipping tasks like printing your shipping labels. You can easily compare rates and delivery times to optimize every shipment. And you can even automate the delivery notifications. And with the enterprise solution, that even makes warehouse optimization easy. Oh yeah, ShipStation scales when you do. With the best discounts in the industry, you'll never have to worry about overpaying for shipping. Get up to 84% off USPS and UPS rates. You heard me, up to 84% off. And if that's not enough, we're going to let you use our promo code to try ShipStation for free for two months. At this point, over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation. And 98% of companies stick with ShipStation for a year, and then they become customers for life. How about that? Keep growing your business all year long with ShipStation. Use our promo code 83 weeks today at ShipStation.com and sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com and the promo code is 83 weeks. Uh, next question, at Rich Tate. Uh, this comment uh, comes only for the sake of discussion. No trolling. I love when they say that, by the way. Yeah, that's a that's a heads up. Right. Uh, I'm a huge fan, but when Tony told us Mick was about to win the title, I changed the channel. I think that was true for a lot of us, and I also think that one backfired. Well, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it did. It did backfire. And Mick Foley, every time I see him, which is a couple times a year, you know, out in the convention circuit or doing what autographs or whatever, He'll usually wait about three or four minutes after greeting before he reminds me every time. No, I did look, but you got to remember, you know, that was a, that was, you know, a, a move that I was doing, you know, it was something I started out doing with nitro when I started giving away their finishes. And the truth is that strategy worked really, really well for a long time until it didn't. And this example is probably the first time it didn't work. And not only didn't it work, I got spanked. Yeah. <laughs> I got spanked. Yeah, but you're also trying something different. You're taking a risk. You're trying. You're evolving. You're 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 not just sitting back and and following the same blueprint that everybody's been following. And that's what separates you from from the rest. You but know? I think that you know, I think that that's one of the things about the Monday Night Wars is and admittedly, not admittedly, but I will put myself over to the extent of saying, you know, when I, when I was told that I was going to do Monday Nitro and go head to head, because it wasn't my choice, as most people know, it was Ted Turner's, mm -hmm. but I, it was my job to make it work. Right. And I knew that I couldn't make it work doing what everybody else did. I had to break the rules. And, you know, the word disruptor didn't exist back then, right? That right. Was, disruptor has been kind of born out of, social media and the internet and so forth. But, um, I didn't, I just said, man, I got to do it. If I do what they're doing, I'm going to get killed. So I look for every single way that I could do everything as differently as possible. And sometimes I wanted to piss people off in the process. Giving the finishes away was a perfect example. I knew not only, you know, people on WWE, which I smiled about when I thought about how pissed off they were going to be, 
But also wrestling fans didn't necessarily all think that was a great thing. But that's what created the controversy. And we know what happens when you create controversy if you do it well. That's right. That's right. And and I love it. I, I mean, that is in boxing, you know, the, the there may be a guy that's not as skilled as his opponent opponent, but if he's unorthodox, that adds a level of danger to the opponent that he he doesn't know what to expect. This guy doesn't lead with a jab. You know, he's he's not what you've always seen. And that that is important to throw a wrench into that wheel every now and then, man. Change it up. Yeah. It it look and it worked. It was fun until it didn't work and it wasn't fun. And it's not fun every time I see Mick Foley. <laughs> <laughs> uh let's go to Peter Ball uh, Peter Bahai or Bahi 27. Uh while you worked for the WWE recently and having to live in Stamford. Were you renting out your house for the time being? That's nice. Real estate agents can check in on the show. Yeah, no, no. Our house here in Wyoming, <clears throat> for me, it was a lifelong, lifelong goal. From the time I was a little kid growing up in Detroit, I was fascinated with the West and mountains. And, and you know, you, you, you can imagine, you know, even if you've never been to the east side of Detroit where I lived, but it was a very cookie-cutter you know, small houses, 700, 800 square feet houses all in a row. And they were all built back in the 40s and the 50s for people that were coming to Detroit to work in the factories and to work for the auto business. So it was a very um, sterile, you know, flat, no mountains, nothing. You know, it was just flat. And I just, yeah, as a kid growing up, you know, back then, we're talking about early 60s is when I first started paying attention to things. You know, television was a communal family affair. And after dinner, everybody sat around that one television because nobody in my neighborhood had more than one. Nobody in my neighborhood got color TV till the late 60s. Remember the first family that got a color TV, man. We were hanging around outside their house watching their TV through the window. Color TV. But growing up in that environment, I always fantasized about mountains and hiking and camping and hunting and fishing and riding horses. And then I came out here. You know, just randomly in, in 1977, I was 22 years old. I had never been further west than the Mississippi at that point. And I, I, I pulled into this town in Cody, Wyoming, about, about 6 o'clock in the morning when I, when I drove into town, and I just fell in love. And I said, someday I'm going to live here. I don't know how. I don't know when. But I made a commitment at a little restaurant that still exists in town. I made a commitment to someday move here. And it took me a while. And we started building this house in 1997. By 1998, we were in it. And I've been grateful for that every single minute since. Um, I have no idea why I even went off on that tangent. Well, I, but no, but because it was, because this house is more than just a place we live. Yeah. Um, we would never rent it out. We barely have people over that we don't know pretty well. Right. <laughs> Right. And was there uh, any other uh, options other than Wyoming when you were thinking being in Detroit, when you were thinking, I want to I want to be in the West, I want to move out West somewhere. Were there any other options in your mind? Yeah, actually, when when my when Lori and I, Mrs. B, as I refer to her on the show, um, decided, OK, we're going to build a house that we're going to build our dream home that we want to retire in, that we want to be able to pass down to our kids, right. uh, that we want our friends and family <clears throat> to be able to come out and enjoy an experience. We looked at Boulder, Colorado. Okay. Yeah. 
we came damn close to building in San, outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Right. I just love that area. Just it's Beautiful. kind of mystical to me in a weird way. Um, there's just a lot of very cool energy. And you're not the first person that I've had that conversation with because I lived in Sedona for a while. So you talk about places with some energy. Uh, yeah, Sedona's but, awesome, man. Yeah. Sedona, Lori and I used to, when we lived in Scottsdale, we'd drive up to Sedona on a regular basis, sometimes stay at some of the really nice resorts up there for a weekend. Oh my God, it's great. But yeah, there were other places, but it came down to, you know, I kept the feeling you that felt I had it. in 1977 kind of trumped everything else yeah it just it kept gnawing at me and i said no nah, it's got to be cody i just feel different here than i do anywhere else yeah and explain it that's the same feeling i got when i met conrad i had the same feeling i said this guy knows where to go eat uh <laughs> let's go to rex griffin seven uh what does eric think of the wyoming set tv series longmire have you ever seen um one? Yeah, you know, I used to watch Longmire, and um, they often referenced, you know, Wyoming and Cody, but I don't think the show was actually shot here. Right. But I liked it. You know, it was it kind of harkened back to the way shows like that, I guess crime dramas is the category. It's a little bit of the way they used to be produced. It mm. The show didn't rely heavily on... Oh, I don't know. I, you know, I don't want to say violence, but graphic violence. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, sex and car chases and, you know, again, graphic violence. It was just a story. And, it, and of course, it was it was set in a culture that, while it may not be Wyoming, it might have been produced somewhere else in Canada or something. It doesn't matter. Or another state. But the, the vibe of it was pretty accurate. You know, it that show was set in in what to me felt like a little town that I've been to many times, uh, Buffalo, Wyoming, for example, yeah. small town outside the mountains. But I love the way they wove in Native American culture into that show because I think that's important. That's a big part of the reason I love the West is I love Native American history and, and culture, and there's so much of it here. I have a bar in my house, a physical bar, back bar that was right outside the Crow Indian reservation back in the late 1800s. Wow. And it's now sitting in my living room, but it came from a literal bar, a, a business uh, in Hardin, Montana. And eventually that bar got condemned because it was old Yeah, and the owner auctioned off everything inside. And that's how I ended up with this bar. But if you do the math and you allow yourself to just think about it a little bit and, and, and maybe stretch it just a tad, but, you know, I, I was sitting at that bar with my wife one night. We were having a glass of wine. We had a fire in the fireplace and just kind of thinking about how lucky we were and how grateful we are for everything. And it occurred to me, I'm looking in this bar and I didn't refinish it, right? I cleaned it, right. but I didn't have it completely refinished. I wanted it in its original state. Sure. And if you sit down at that bar and you look at all the names that are carved in it and all the messages that were carved in it and things like that, it occurred to me that there were probably some participants, Native Americans, that were a part of the little bighorn battle. It wasn't right. a massacre. It was a battle. Right. right. And some of some of those, and a lot of them were Crow Indians, yeah. for example, off the Crow Indian Reservation. Hard Montana is right outside of the Crow Indian Reservation in Montana. 
there were a lot of people that probably sat at that bar that either participated in the Battle of Little Bighorn or someone in their family did. And just to, <clears throat> for me, this is a kind of weirdo I am, to be able to sit there and know that people that had a significant role in a very significant part of American history, especially Western American Western history, are sat at the same bar I'm sitting at. It's just kind of one of those things that I can drift off and really get excited about thinking about. As you I'm with tell. you. I'm with you because the people go, the energy is still there. The energy will always kind of be there. You can feel that. If you focus in on it, you can really uh, you can get a feel for it. Um, uh, what is this one? Jada Ease the Geek uh, has a uh, two-parter. Is that the one we're doing, or did I skip? Well, no, I skipped. Sorry. Uh, Rosen Rosenbaum Law, my people. What's up, Rosenbaum? All right, let's go uh, here. You worked for Vern in the dying days of the AWA. One, what did you learn from him that helped you with WCW? And two, what did you learn from him on what not to do with WCW? <clears throat> That's a tough one because I think I was influenced greatly by Vern Gagne and, and my experience, not just Vern, but a guy by the name of Mike Shields who passed along not too long ago, mm -hmm. passed away not too long ago. Uh, the, the amount of influence that I, I, I know, I, the, the amount, the, the, how am I, I'm trying to say this. I know I was influenced greatly by that experience, partially because <clears throat> I came in with no preconceived ideas. I didn't know anything about wrestling. I mean, I knew I watched it on television. I enjoyed watching it and had all my life. I used to watch it with my grandmother. She loved it. Agnes was her name. Agnes was a mean bitch, Julie. <laughs> she hated me. <laughs> Let me tell you something about Agnes. You're going to have to remind me why I'm answering this question. I, I, will, I will. But Agnes, my grandmother, again, this is something that was kind of in and Kevin Nash and I were talking about this the other day on the phone because he's from the same area of Detroit I, I grew up in. And it's like in back in the sixties, if you were of Polish descent, you were the brunt of every joke. Yeah. I mean, they were like, like we never heard the N word. Right. Kid growing up. But if you were Polish, oh, oh yeah. my, if you had somebody in your neighborhood that was Polish, Oh my goodness gracious. It was horrible. And that was kind of a thing for some reason. And at that time, in the area of Detroit that I grew up in again, because so many people came from other countries, other parts of the States, whatever and they all lived there. And it was a very diverse community. Um, very diverse. Like I had Italians that lived two doors down from me and their, their kids obviously spoke English, but the parents did. They only spoke Italian, you know? And, but man, if you were Polish, it was horrible. And my grandmother refused to to admit that she was Polish because everybody else in my family would make fun of her for being Polish and she would get mad as hell she denied she smoked Paul Mall cigarettes she chain smoked Paul Mall cigarettes and she starts sucking down those things and she get angry denied it and then I signed up for ancestry.com a few years ago like about yeah. 10 years ago or something and I'm really into it and I'm going through it and I found out my grandmother's maiden name was Polowski <laughs> P O H L L O W S K I 
she was a hundred percent Polish and she just denied it, but she was mean about everything. But the only time she wasn't ragging on me because she lived with us, which is a real freaking treat. Let me tell you, yeah. about it. 750 square foot house, two, uh, my parents and three kids and my chain smoking, palm oil devouring grandmother. The only time she wasn't ragging on me, she didn't like me at all. I don't know why to this day, because I was a sweet kid. <laughs> but the only time she, we got along is when we were watching wrestling together. Yeah. That's the only time. Now, what was the question? I forgot. Well, it was a question of working with Vern. What did you learn? Oh, uh, my God. How did that come about? Anyway, I went, I went to work for Vern. I didn't have an opinion. I wasn't influenced by what I read on the Internet. Clearly, it was 1987. Um, I, I walked in with a clean slate and I just absorbed. And that was my first impression working for Vern. All of those impressions about the business and what's good, what's bad, what's whatever. All of those came to me and were formulated during my first experience in the industry. So they, there were so many of those influences. There weren't necessarily lessons, for example. I can't pinpoint one thing, but I'll give you a couple examples of the things that still influence me today. And formed the way I not only produce wrestling when I was producing it, but the way I look and enjoy it now is when I walked into the doors of AWA 1987, my first day in the job, Vern's building was set up so that um, you had the television studio on one side, you had the offices, the administration, all the other stuff on the other side. There was very little, you know, the only way you went from the office side and were allowed to go over to the TV studio when things were being produced was if you were on camera or directing, like you had to have a reason to be there. You couldn't just walk in and out and go, oh, I'm going to watch these guys cut a promo. Vern was really all about kayfabe. He was, he was in, in, a, in a better way to say that he was about maintaining the mystery mm. and the intrigue and keeping the audience as best he could in that frame of mind where you allowed yourself to just believe what was going on inside of the ring and identify with it, identify with one of the characters. And Vern didn't smarten me up. I hate to use that term, but Vern didn't expose me to anything resembling the creative process until about 19, early 1989 or mid 1989. And then just very gradually. And that was because now I'm doing play by play in around that time. And that necessitated Vern sitting down with me and kind of giving me the breakdown of what was going to happen. And my impression from that, that I still hold dearly and, and I'm grateful for it because it influenced a lot of things like the NWO, for example, of course, keep going back there. but is to, is to maintain the integrity of the product. And he taught me that my job wasn't to be, a star of the show. My job was to be a supporting cast member. I was like one level up from the janitor, meaning don't try to get myself over, do everything you can to get the story over, to get the talent over and to make people feel by virtue of my play by play, which by the way, wasn't that good at the time, but he tried, <laughs> but to make people feel like they're in the arena, you know, and that stuck with me and still does to this day. Um, those are the types of things that I learned from Vern that created impression upon, not just from Vern, but from all the people around him. And I still hold that to this day. I think one of the biggest things that is still the most powerful element in, 
professional wrestling today when it comes to the presentation is when you find those moments where you're not sure if it's real or not. Right. Or you quit even thinking about it. Right. You know, and I've had some coffee, Shuli, so I'm going to just go so far off the rails with this. I apologize and to everybody listening. But I did a um, I did a TED talk, TEDx talk a while back, and I talked about how politics is very much like professional wrestling mm-hmm. in insofar as the talking, you know, 24-hour news cycles, talking heads, it's all it's not really news, right? It's all opinions. That presentation of news currently is designed to make you feel. It's designed to make you afraid. It's designed to make you angry. It's, It's designed to make you defensive. It's all based in fear. That's what news has become, generally speaking. They want to make you feel. Right. And now wrestling has gotten to the point where oftentimes it makes you think Mm. and wrestling should make news should make you think information should be presented to you in such a way that it encourages you, encourages you to think about both sides of a story or think about two different angles in the situation and then do some research and give it some thought. That's what news should be. News shouldn't make you feel it should make you think wrestling on the other hand, for a lot of fans, it's all about thinking. And it should be about feeling. And when you find that sweet spot in the story where it's so good that the audience quits thinking about it and starts feeling it, that's the magic. And it still happens, you know, infrequently. But when it does, man, it's it's magic. That's what I learned or the impressions that, I, that were so strong that I, I hold them to this day when I work for AWA. All right, we got to take a time out right now to tell you about our friends of the Athletic Greens. Eric Bischoff is a big believer. So is me and my family. Every day, both households start their day with one scoop of AG1 to get everything we need. And what we're talking about is 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. Really, honestly, truly, everything we need to start our day right. It's a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your recovery, your aging, all of the things. It has less than one gram of sugar. There's no GMOs. There's no nasty chemicals. There's no artificial anything, but somehow it still tastes good. It's also lifestyle friendly. Whether you're trying to do keto or paleo or vegan or dairy-free or gluten-free, there's something for everybody here. It's also going to support better sleep quality and recovery, better mental clarity and alertness. And by the way, it's going to cost you less than three bucks a day. I can't recommend this enough. You got to go check it out right now. Athletic Greens has more than 7,000 five-star reviews. Me and my family are amongst them. Right now, it's time for you to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash 83 weeks. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash 83 weeks to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I I liked his follow-up, which was, was there anything that he, that 
you learned from him by him not doing something correctly or him, you know, maybe it was a communication thing or, or, but those lessons are almost just as important as the, the positive ones is, uh, you know, what did you learn from him that you did not take with you to uh, WCW? Ver Vern was very, that's a great question. Vern was very stubborn. Much like Vince McMahon. They're, those two guys are probably alike in more ways than, than they're not. Now, obviously, you know, Vern didn't have the success and all that, but that's the reason for that. <laughs> right. Is, is because Vern was so set in his ways. He was so, he had blinders on, much like Bill Watts did. It's one of the reasons I didn't get along with Bill Watts and why Bill Watts didn't last long in WCW. For the same reason, those two were cut from the same cloth, but they were both so stubborn when it came to the way the product was presented they both wanted to go back to the 70s mm -hmm. they both wanted to go back they believed in their heart and their soul that the only way that wrestling was going to survive is if it went back to doing things the way they used to do them i can't tell you how many times i heard Vern and greg and, and others um vince wwf it's what it was, it was called back then. It's never going to last. It's showbiz. It's not what people, wrestling fans want wrestling. I heard that a thousand times. And of course, being impressionable for a long time, I went, yep, Vern's saying it must be true, right? Um, but over time, I recognized that Vern's stubbornness and unwillingness to go, okay, I know what worked back in the 70s when I was making a lot of money and the business was at the you know highest level it ever been for him personally. But you have to recognize that the audience evolves and what they want to watch evolves and how they want to watch it evolves. And Vern was so stubborn, he kept going back to the 70s. He, he laughed about WWF. You know, he, he, he thought for sure it was going to blow up and ultimately not work. And that was born out of stubbornness. Bill Watts was much the same way. So to answer the question, what I learned is, and, and it was reinforced by some of the things that I learned from Ted Turner, by the way is don't program wrestling or anything that you like program what the audience likes and learning how to read your audience and how to know your audience. And your audience isn't the most vocal 10% on social media. The audience is the 90, look at the dog. I love that. The audience is the 99 or 90% of the people that just enjoy the show because they want to, they want an alternative to the rest of the programming that's out there. And does it guest appearance uh, run in by Lila? The uh, Lila, Lila's pretty here, here. Lila, come here, girl. Here, Lila. Let's get another look at Lila. Lila. Here. Come, here. come on, Lila. We're gonna make you famous. Come here, baby. Get up here. Up. Oh. There. Oh, Lila, my girl. Come here, Lila. Here. Look at it. Nah, she's just loving on you. I get it. Yeah. All right. Get lost. I love you. I'll see you in a little bit. Um, I, hear, I hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, same. Yeah, my wife says when I when she's in the shower and I pop it, she goes, "Get lost." I'll see you a little bit. Go. Um, all right, let's get on to called Slim has a question. Uh, always wanted to know if your NWO boss TV reveal deliberately lessened Trillionaire Ted's TV role, uh, planned or just the way it rolled out. That's a great question. You know, um, no, it, it had nothing to do. The, the billionaire Ted skits, the, the only 
effect that it had on us is I, I will tell you the truth. When they first came out, I was like, oh man, Ted's not going to like this. And Ted eventually, I wasn't there when he watched him. I was told this by Bill Shaw, who worked for Ted Turner. And Bill Shaw was my boss at the time. I think he was. Um, Bill Shaw told me that Ted laughed his ass off. He thought it was great. And once I knew that, oh, this is no big deal, um, that was the end of it. I just thought they were entertaining. I did like them personally. Yeah. I, I did think fun. they were funny. But it also was the first time that Vince started to really sell publicly. Right. You know, because Vince was like, everybody thought, no, Vince is never going to sell. He's never going to sell. He'll never acknowledge. And that was just a challenge to me. I thought, okay, well, watch this, <laughs> you know. And, <laughs> and eventually he started selling like, like a bitch. And I, I kind of dug it. You know, I finally got him to react and get him. I got him to sell. So that's how I, you know, I, Ted thought they were funny. And I was kind of proud of myself for making the, the guy who never sells anything sell. It's a big accomplishment, my friend. Uh, you should be proud. Uh, now let's go to Jada Ease the Geek. Uh, Eric, you have talked several times about how ECW did not affect the booking of WCW and was not influenced by it. While I'm sure you weren't, Kevin Sullivan was a huge ECW guy and was lead booker. Do you feel he was influenced, thus influencing WCW? Yeah, that's a great question. And by the way, for anybody listening, if I ever said specifically ECW didn't have any impact on WCW booking, then I, I misspoke. When I say ECW had no impact on me, that's true. I never watched it. I didn't care. I didn't even care what was going on in WWE. Why the hell would I care what was going on in the ECW? Because nobody was watching it. It was a it was a, the, the niche of a niche audience. You know, you, you, I joke about it, man. If you wanted to watch it where I lived, you had to wrap yourself in aluminum foil, crawl up on the roof at 1.30 in the morning and hope that the weather would allow you to get the signal. <laughs> you know, it was on these just little tiny television stations that had little or no coverage, but clearly Kevin Sullivan was, had his finger on the pulse over to ECW. Kevin was into ECW. I never watched it. And I'm absolutely, I would bet a lot of my money that some of the things that Kevin brought to the table when Kevin was head of creative, um, I'm sure influenced. Kevin, which in, 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 in by default in affected the WCW product, but not driven by me. Right. Um, did I allow it to happen? Of course. And you know, it's another thing I was thinking about this the other day. I don't give Kevin Sullivan nearly enough credit often in the discourse here. When we talk about that era, Kevin was the lead booker. I didn't get involved in much of the creative with the exception, I did strategically. Like I was, I was the lead on the cruiserweight division. That was an idea that that I had, that I believed in, that I more or less forced into the equation. Obviously, the NWO and the things that happened towards the top of the card with the bigger names. Obviously, I was involved in that. Not necessarily driving the creative, but I was a part of that. Sometimes I would influence and, and sometimes I would direct the creative at the, and be the final word on some of the things that happened at the top of the card, but things that generally happened below the line, the line being probably the, the 
top 25% of our roster, I was very much involved in it. But being involved doesn't mean I was in control of it. A lot of it was collaborative. A lot of it came from the talent that was involved. But Kevin was the guy, especially for things that happened below that top 25% of the roster. Um, and he deserves a lot of credit for the, the great things that he did. Um, people assume because I was the head of the company that I approved every decision that was made in WCW. It's not true. It's impossible. Um, but when it came to creative it, and I, and I didn't even really get involved in creative, even in that upper 25% of the roster till really about 1995, 1996 and 1997 by 1997, I was probably getting more involved because I was getting more confident and I'd learned a lot. Right. Over the course of two years of being in the process. But even then, Kevin was still driving probably 70% or 75% of everything you saw on television was Kevin Sullivan's fingerprints. Genius guy, that's for sure. Um, Very cool. And I miss Kevin. I'm going to go out to see him. He lives out he lives on an island off the coast of Washington State. Uh, and he's just the coolest dude. And I can't wait to sit down and chat. Yeah, because he's a he's a great guy. And it's beautiful out there. My brother lives out there, so I, I've been out there many times. Uh, legit eleven eighty one. Uh, Eric, will we ever will we ever see an actual sit down with you, Vince McMahon, and Paul Heyman? I say yes when Eric buys WWE. That's yeah, that was, that's about what it would take. <laughs> you know, I I don't think so. Mostly, I mean, Paul and I I think would love to do it. You know, Paul Paul and I still you know we don't. We don't chat on the phone or anything like that, but we, we still stay in touch, you know? Um, How great is the work he's doing, by the way? He's, he's in another world. He's, he, he's, in a, he's in a universe all of his own as a performer. There's nobody you can compare to him ever. Um, Paul and I would love to do it. I just don't see Vince ever going, yeah, I got some time on my schedule this afternoon. I think I'm going to sit down and chat with my, my old buddy, Eric Bischoff and, and Paul Heyman. I tell you, you throw that on pay per view. That's money right there, buddy. I don't think Vince uh, needs the money anymore. I think <laughs> I think he's good. <laughs> <laughs> I, on the other hand, give me a shout, Vince. I'm here for you. <laughs> yeah, we'd have to knock him out like BA in the A team, and he would just wake <laughs> up at a sit down with you guys. Uh, Lauren, why? Uh, ask uh, once again. I'd like to ask Eric to be my Valentine. Love you, mean it. Look at that. She's awesome. You know, I talked earlier about ad-free shows and the impact that it's had on people. Josh Rosenbaum got a whole new career because of ad-free shows. Um, Lauren, early on, when I first started working for with Conrad, for Conrad, actually, but with Conrad on a podcast, somehow we did some promotion, and I was going to call – fans or do a zoom with fans, right? It might've been the first one I ever did. And Lauren was on the list of people for me to reach out to. And I did. And I, I had her on my phone. I was chatting with her. She was at a barbecue or a family picnic or something with her kids and her in-laws and all that. And I, you know, I had a great conversation with her and I hung up and I went, I wish she was a part of ad free shows. She's good. This, this young lady has some talent. And then I learned subsequently that, you know, she had worked in news, I think, before and, and done some things. And I got her, 
I talked to Conrad and, and Lauren started doing some things on ad-free shows and doing a great job at it, hosting some of the Zoom things that we did. And she was so fun and brought so much to the party when it came to doing that type of thing, hosting them. And she grew and grew and grew. She became friends with my wife and worked with my wife, you know, off and on with some things. And she became a part of the family, you know, part of a friend of the family, I should say. And then she went on to get a great job working in television news. She covers sports and she's grown so much because prior to that, she wasn't doing anything. She was kind of wondering what she was going to do with the rest of her life. She gets involved with ad free. She starts working with the team. She gets a job working in, in TV news and she's off and running and I'm proud of her. Um, she's a cool, cool lady. Uh, I I like these uh, next couple of questions, TNA related and business related. Uh, first one from uh, Crazy JJ or no JJ Leonard sixteen is his handle. Was there any discussion about bringing in Goldberg in your time in TNA? Yeah, I had a conversation with Bill. Um, I remember it kind of specifically when the you know it came up in a meeting I was in. Dixie was in a part of that meeting, and we were kind of thinking about you know what's a big move we can make. And then Bill's name came up, and I was the only one there that had a relationship with Bill at the time or could reach out and just call him. Um, so I left the meeting and gave Bill a call and said, "Hey, man, just what do you think?" You know, mm -hmm. and Bill, you know, he, he's a friend. He was very polite. Um, but he let me know that he was not interested in at that time getting back in wrestling, especially in TNA. I don't think Bill wanted to leave, you know, beating Hulk Hogan in the Georgia Dome in front of however many thousands of people to having matches in a soundstage. <laughs> Just wasn't on his list of things to do. <laughs> uh, not everybody's ready for that transition, my friend. It's a tough one. Right. Uh, can't believe this is real, but woo wings, your very own virtual restaurant concept is now open and fans can enjoy the legendary flavors and world championship wings by ordering with their Uber eats or Postmates app. Woo wings is now open in Nashville, San Antonio, Jacksonville, as well as Huntsville and Tuscaloosa right here in Alabama. Many more locations coming soon as a virtual restaurant. Woo Wings is looking to partner with existing restaurants in major metro areas. Tell your favorite sports bar or local restaurant you want Woo Wings in your town. And to visit RickFlairWings.com for more information on how to become a partner. But if you're in Nashville, San Antonio, Jacksonville, Huntsville, or Tuscaloosa, hop on your Uber Eats or Postmates app and look for Woo Wings and try the only chicken wings worthy hearing the name of the 16-time world heavyweight champion, Woo wings. Be sure to check out rickflairwings.com to become a partner. This one from let's go back to WCW. Um, great handle. Hypothetically, could you have gotten a venture capital firm to buy TNA? Um, I, you know, I, good question. No, hmm. no. And when I say that, it's not to say that there might not have, potentially been people out there, especially if now, if I was going to do it before I would have gone out and tried to make the, obviously you have to work with the, the current <laughs> owners of an organization before you can go out and start finding people to buy them. Right. right. You need a certain amount of information and cooperation. Step one's pretty important. Step one, you know, step yeah. one would have been, had I, had I attempted that to have a, a 
productive conversation about it and know that at least the door is open for the right opportunity. Correct. Once I checked that box, my next step would have been to go on to Viacom and hypothetically, Mr. Viacom, um, if a third party comes in, would you be willing to make a long-term commitment to either carry the program or become part of the investment team, which would have been my first move. Ultimately, I tried to do that later on, but if I would have tried to put together a team to buy it, I would have gotten long-term buy-in from Viacom because otherwise you're going to go to an investment group and say, hey, I want to buy this company and they've got a year and a half left on their TV contract and that's what generates 90% of the revenue. Then the first question from their side is, yeah, but what happens when that goes away? Right. That, that makes that investment really risky. So the way to mitigate that would be to go to your broadcast partner, in this case, Viacom, and get either get them to become an equity partner, even if they don't bring cash, um, or at the very least, a long-term television commitment. Once those two things, those two boxes were checked, then sure, you could have, I could have, anybody could have gone out and that was in that world and tried to raise money. And I think you, you could have been successful at the time, but that wasn't my world and that wasn't my goal. I didn't have any goal of being connected to TNA long-term. Yeah, or, or the re not not a shot at TNA, or the wrestling business long term. I didn't want that to be my life's work. Uh, by the way, love hearing you talk business. Uh, never knew I was so into business discussions, but I think the thing I like about it the most is that it's kind of like an episode of Shark Tank, but it's about a field that I understand. It's about a world that I'm a fan of, professional wrestling. So to hear the breakdowns and the behind the scenes and how you would do it and how they should do it, like that stuff I love. That that I, I love those discussions. And that's, um, you know, and thank you for that. That's quite a compliment because it's not easy to get involved in the business of anything. It's kind of boring compared to somebody doing you know, cartwheels off a ladder into the crowd while they're on fire. You know, that's, that's an easy thing to go. Wow. Right. Um, but you know, the business of the business is kind of dry, mm. but if people are like you who are really interested in the business, it's kind of fun to pull back the curtain and see how all the gears grind together. It's, it is. But it's gotta be, it's gotta be explained correctly. Like it's gotta be explained the right way where you don't fall asleep listening to somebody, right? There's gotta be, it's gotta go somewhere. And, uh, and so I think that's, that's what hooks me with, with your, your show with John Alba and, and just you breaking down business in general. Thanks, um, and by the way, for everybody listening, if, if you haven't checked out strictly business, I encourage you to do so some great stuff there. We had a great conversation with Brian Badal, the guy that I worked with to try to buy WCW from Turner broadcasting. He created a couple uh, media ventures, ended up selling them to ESPN and, and, and Viacom CBS. He's got a company that uh, invests in um, startup tech and media ventures. Brilliant guy. We covered the WWE situation in detail from his perspective of being in that world of mergers and acquisitions and media and so forth. Um, great show. We've done a couple of really great ones. But if you if you haven't checked it out, subscribe right now to 83 Weeks, wherever you're listening to it. Um and you'll be notified when Strictly Business drops off the same feed. So check it out. It's a really cool show. It's growing by leaps and bounds. I'm getting people calling me from outside of the wrestling business to discuss the industry um, that shocked me, quite honestly. It's, it's, been a, it's a great show. And I have so much fun doing it. Alba's doing a great job. He brings a lot to the table. 
But the only way you're going to get it is to subscribe to 83 Weeks. And while you're there, help me kick the hell out of the algorithm thing. I need to move up the list with our YouTube show. So whether it's here as a podcast, subscribe, like, make some great comments. Give me five stars. I don't care. Not me. Us. Give us five stars. Same thing with Strictly Business. Let's let's uh, move that thing to the top of the list. Yeah, and Tim in the chat says you should surely you should listen to Strictly Business. I listen. What are you kidding me? I threw John Alba a bone. I was going to host that thing with Eric, and I said, you know what? You don't got a lot going on, Johnny. Here, you take the show. I got enough plates spinning right now. I know Strictly. How dare you, Tim? How dare you? Uh, I want to jump around here because I like this question. Um, Let's see here from Legit, 1181. Have you even for the slightest second thought about throwing your hat in with some people and buying WWE? No. no. (laughs) I love my life right now. And and by the way, not that I, you know, that's that the level of people that play in that world, that's rarefied air that I never breathe. I never get a sniff of it. So it's unrealistic. But even if it was realistic for me, I, I love my life the way it is. I have goals. I have things that I want to do in my life now. And I'm not a kid. I'm going to be 68 years old in May, right? Yep, and I've I have a pretty clear picture of what I want the last chapter of my life to be like if it's another twenty or thirty years or whatever it is, um, and it doesn't have anything to do with being involved in wrestling full time. Uh, this one from Adam Leeson: What's the most out of place Eric has felt in business in the business? Does Eric believe? And there's a second question: Does Eric believe Thunder would have been a success? if he'd been given more time to get it on the air and how much final question, how much extra did it cost to put on? So three questions there from Adam. Yeah, let's break it. I'm not, I don't have the capacity to juggle three questions at once. So what was the first part? So the first one was what's the most out of place Eric has felt in the business. Honest answer is the first day I walked into WWE as an employee back in 2019. <laughs> and, and it's just, it's a different culture and a small part of me. Every time I walked into my office was, God, you know, I can't believe I'm working for a company that I was competing with so aggressively. I just never felt. And when I say this, I want to be really freaking clear. Everybody in WWE from Vince McMahon, Shane, Stephanie, Linda, Kevin Dunn, obviously I was already friends with Bruce Pritchard, but there was Triple H was one of the first people to send me a text welcoming welcoming me. Everybody went out of their way to make me feel at home and make me feel comfortable. But there was always that little part of me in the back of my head every time I walked (laughs) in my office and went, what the hell am I doing here? (laughs) This is crazy. You know, and it wasn't uncomfortable necessarily, but even when I worked for, when I worked for Turner, you know, Turner was a publicly held company. It was very much a corporate culture, but it was more of an entrepreneurial corporate culture because that's what Ted was like it. Things trickled down from the top. Right. And Ted was brash. He was outspoken. He said controversial things. 
you know, he, he was the atypical media mogul at that time. And that existed throughout Turner. Everybody was, had a lot more of an entrepreneurial vibe to him than any environment that I had been in up to that point. And, and once the AOL Time Warner thing happened, I saw that begin to change. People that had that entrepreneurial kind of vibe to them were all of a sudden trying to be like their counterparts at Time Warner because that's actually who they work for now. So guys that would show up wearing a nice pair of jeans, sport coat, nice shirt without a tie, casual shoes, you know, whatever. Um, all of a sudden now they're wearing three dark blue three-piece suits with wingtip shoes, white shirt, and a red tie. <laughs> it, it was crazy. And that was uncomfortable for me. But when I got to WWE, because the culture was so much top-down, mean, meaning it was driven by the guy at the top, I felt like I was going to work at a law firm in right. terms of the culture. Everybody was so buttoned up, so tightly and perfectly, because that's the way Vince operates, right? And that stuff trickles down. People right. get hired because of the cultural template that's already in existence so everybody especially in the upper senior management level were so buttoned up that that's not a comfortable environment for me i i have to i had to force myself to put that suit on every day i couldn't wait to rip it off at two o'clock in the morning when i finally got home um yeah that was that was kind of uncomfortable what was the second part i'll try to make this shorter uh, the second part, if we can get the, where'd the question go up here? Uh, most out of place in business. Uh, oh, here we go. Does Eric believe thunder would have been a success if he'd been given more time to get it on the air and how much did it cost to put it on? Um, I don't think it would have been a success. I think it was a bad decision to begin. And it was Ted Turner's decision. It wasn't mine. It wasn't Brad Siegel's. It wasn't anybody at TBS. In fact, everybody that I just mentioned, with the exception of Ted Turner, tried to convince Ted not to do it. And they all had their various reasons. From my perspective, it was oversaturation. We had a good thing going on Nitro. We were must-see TV. We were over-delivering on anybody's expectations. We were driving great revenue well-positioned WWE was in our rear view mirror when it came to head to head competition. <clears throat> and we were growing by leaps and bounds. And I knew when Harvey Schiller called me, I've told this story before. I'll keep it short. I was actually, I had taken a vacation for the first time in a long time. I was with my wife and kids and we were driving through, I think Colorado or somewhere. And I got a call from Harvey Schiller and he said, Ted wants to go live on Thursday nights. I thought Harvey was kidding me. I thought it was a joke. I said, Harvey, what are you you're messing up? My, I'm with my family. I'm on vacation. Quit fucking with me. And I didn't quite say it that way. But I didn't think he was serious. And he said, no, Eric, I'm not. This is, I know you're on vacation. When you get back, hit the ground running because Ted wants to do Thursdays. And I knew it was a mistake. So did everybody else. I sat with Brad Siegel. Brad Siegel, who was the president of TNT, and he was protective of the Nitro because Nitro was doing really well for TNT. It was makes him look original. good, right? And it makes him look good that, that is, it's a success. Yeah, so, yeah why? So, why? So Brad was against it. Now, Brad reported to Ted Turner. I didn't. I reported at that time to Harvey Schiller. So I sat down with Brad, and, and Brad gave me pointers 
He said, listen, if you're going to, I said, I've tried. Ted right. won't listen to me. He may listen to you. And if I were you, here's how I would position this. So he coached me on how to try to get Ted to not do thunder. And Ted was determined. And I knew it was a mistake then. So did everybody else. So I don't think it would have been successful. Long, long story short, because the product was just too diluted. You can't have at one point we had three hours on Monday night and an additional two hours. No. How much did it cost to put on? That was another big issue because nobody wanted to pay for it. Uh, <laughs> Bill Burke at TBS, he was the, the, the president of TBS network. He didn't want to pay for it. He didn't want to come in out of his budget. He didn't even want the show. Ted did. So guess who got to pay for that show? Came yeah. out of my budget. There was no license fee. Wow. And the cost of that, you'd have to really, I, because talent was under contract and I use talent for both shows. So it's a little bit difficult to assign a, a cost of doing business, a cost of business with regard to talent. But just the physical production of that show and all the things that went into it, the travel and the arenas and the venue, blah, 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 blah. That show was about 250000 300000 at that time to produce. Um, and that came out of my budget. And you talk about cost. I mean, the cost was killing momentum. You know, forget the dollar amount. There was a system in place that wasn't broken. And and then they it, changed, it, you know. It, it was the dilution of the product. Hey, y'all, let's take a time out and talk about our friends over at CamperMax.com. If you've been thinking about in this new year, picking up a travel trailer or a fifth wheel RV, buddy, here's a little life hack for you. CamperMax.com will deliver anywhere in the lower 48. So you can start shopping right now from your office, your cell phone, or even your couch at CamperMax.com. They're going to give you a discount that will fit any budget. They offer easy financing terms and how about extended terms? So what does that mean? Well, it's easy to get approved and it's a lower monthly payment, an affordable monthly payment. That's what CamperMax is all about doing. They want to make it easy to your family to start enjoying this new RVing lifestyle that everybody has thought about with their family. CamperMax.com can make it a reality. There's two X's in CamperMax, C-A-M-P-E-R-M-A-X-X.com. Or let's do it old school. Let's give them a shout at 256-320-7033. And be sure to mention my name, Conrad, and get that old friend of a friend discount at CamperMax.com. Now we got the hard-hitting questions here. Uh, Kayfabe Jobber, good name. Uh, when are you, Meltzer, and Corny going to eat and film a table for three? Yeah, that won't happen. <laughs> uh, you know, I've done one with Jim Cornette, and I I enjoy Jim's shows, by the way. He does a great job. I, I he's, he's entertaining as hell. Oh. I don't necessarily agree with sometimes the way he says things or, or even some of the positions he takes. We have distinct differences in, in many respects, but I also kind of relate to a lot of the things that he says, not all of them, but a lot of them. I think it, in, in some respects, we're probably a little more alike alike than either one of us would even want to admit publicly, although I'm doing it right now, we have sat down, you know, we were a part of a table for three in WWE. I'd love to sit down and do something like that with Jim. I find him to be a fascinating, he's a very smart guy. Um, I find him fascinating and I, I don't mind getting into a, a table for three type environment with someone that I respect and that I know is intelligent. Um, that would exclude Dave Meltzer. <laughs> and, and, and not only from my perspective, I think from Cornette's as well. 
yeah no i you guys are actually in cahoots there you, you're you're finally on the same page you and corny um let's go to courtney 46 uh, i won't read the rest of the number because i'm feeling it's a zip code or a fo- phone number do you think john cena's heel turn would have been as impactful as hulk hogan's and if yes who would have been in cena's nwo you know, I can't fantasy book on this show. It just takes too much time. But um, do I think Cena's heel turn would have had the same impact of Hogan's? I think it would have been on the same level in many aspects. I think in terms of the television audience and the reaction to it and the impact that it could have had on business going forward. I think there were very many similarities, and in some respects, I think it could have had as much or possibly more of an impact in some ways because WWE was operating at such a high level at that point, and the audience was at its, at, at, at some of those periods of time, if not at its peak, close to it. But Hulk Hogan was the first. But I, you know what I mean? I mean, Hulk Hogan became the first larger-than-life mainstream professional wrestler. Cover of Sports Illustrated. Johnny Carson. Rocky None Luke. of those things happened before that. Wrestling, went during that period of time, had transitioned from being this regional, kind of low-budget, smoky, dingy venue, you know, television product, to being something that looked amazing. The production values, the size of the audience, the costuming, the characters. When when Vince McMahon first took WWF back in the 80s to that next step, or whatever the date was, to that next step and became that national promotion vis-a-vis cable, that was an amazing time, and Hulk Hogan was the focal point of that. And... When you step, when Hulk established his character that strongly and maintained it for such a long period of time, all the way up until the day that he turned heel, that heel turn affected an audience that had been watching that character for what, 20, 25 years at that point? And that's when I say I think John would have had and WWE would have had tremendous amount of success in some cases, perhaps. And I'm talking about financially now because of merchandise and things like that. That's an example of something that WWE didn't have in place to the extent that it could have, um, certainly in comparison to WWE. But there's a perfect example of merch. Hulk Hogan's turn had a tremendous impact on merch at WCW because it, we didn't have any merch at that point. From a financial perspective, yes, we did have merchandise. Yes, we sold T-shirts at venues and things like that. But that's not the same thing as having a retail partnership with Walmart, right? Right. right. And that's an example of, of a way that WWE would have surpassed the Hulk Hogan heel turn in that category. But in terms of culturally, because Hulk had touched so many different generations of audience in such a profound way that I don't think had had Cena turned heel that to this day the same amount of people would have felt as strongly about it because when Hulk Hogan turned heel I saw adults crying yeah yeah now, that's you, profound 
you literally rocked people's foundations like like they didn't know what because it was it was the one thing you knew was never going to happen is say your prayers and eat your vitamins guy is going to turn into a bad guy one day that's never going to happen when, and when, you, when you see you go back and watch that and and I was in the crowd you know, I, I wanted to watch. I wanted to watch it from the cheap seats, and I wasn't down at ringside close enough to actually see some of the people crying around ringside. But I did after the fact, you know. And there, there were, there were adults, there were children that were so upset they had tears running down their face. Yeah. When you can do something, and remember when I went back and we talked about Vergania and yep. making people feel. That's why we're still talking about that angle and that storyline, because more than anything up until that point and possibly anything that have happened since, I've never seen anything create that type of emotion where people were so invested in the character and the story that when the outcome that we saw, this unexpected outcome happened, people literally were driven to tears. That's getting people to invest. That's the magic that I talked about that I really kind of learned from my experience working with Vern is keep it real. Allow people to believe. Don't, don't feel the need as an announcer to be so smart and subtly, you know, kind of lay things out in such a way that it, it, it actually deflects or minimizes the ability of the audience to get sucked into the story. It's a right. nuance, but it's an important one. Um, Drew Landry asks, Eric, why didn't we see Bret Hart versus Hogan when you were in charge of WCW? Was Bret mentally done? Did Hulk not want to do it? To me, that matches money. Uh, none of the above. Um, I've mentioned before, and with all due respect to Bret, because I try really hard not, not to be negative. Look, Bret Hart amazing performer in a class all of his own when it comes to in-ring performance and his, his technical abilities. Uh, I, I loved watching Bret Hart matches. I still do because of the, the, the level of almost perfection that he had in some ways in the ring. Uh, but when Bret got to WCW, he had gone through a lot. He was, you know, the Mo Montreal Screwjob thing had much more of an impact on him than most people know, and maybe even more than he's willing to admit at this point in time. But he, there was no rush. It wasn't that. I don't want to suggest that because of that, I didn't book Hogan right away with Brett. No, it's because when I brought Brett in, it was because of Thunder. Mm. It was because Ted Turner was determined to bring in Thunder. I knew to avoid the dilution, dilution of the product that I could see coming, I had to separate the rosters so that you didn't have talent crossing over constantly because then you, now you've got five hours of primetime wrestling on uh, a week. And it's, it's just no way to sustain that from a creative perspective right now. One of the hottest shows on television is Yellowstone. Can you imagine if there was five hours of Yellowstone available that, that, that audience would deteriorate so quickly. It would make people's heads spin. And I saw that freight train coming, too much dilution. So what was my option? Okay, I'm going to bring in some different talent, new talent that we hadn't already seen on Nitro because they were already many of them overexposed, especially that upper that upper card. 
So that's why I brought in Bret Hart. But when I brought him in, it was more for a long-term creative strategy than, a, okay, let's make as much money with Bret Hart as we can. Let's book Hogan and Bret because we want to do that right away. It was no, that was antithetical. Google it. Um, antithetical to the way I wanted to approach things creatively and Hogan and Brett were going to be there, but I wanted to build up to it. I wanted it to matter. I wanted there to be a great story. I didn't want to, you know, be the dirt sheet booker of the year and put together a dream match um, without a long-term strategic plan. And it would have been too soon. Honestly, Hogan would have loved to work with Brett. Hogan would want to make sure Brett's head was on straight because <laughs> right. Hogan and Brett had issues in WWE. That's part of that. It didn't just happen in WCW. Brett and Hogan had a lot of issues. And I heard Hogan's side of the story where they had to work those issues out in front of Vince McMahon. And Brett Hart ended up walking out the door with his head down and his tail between his legs. That And that existed long before Hogan or Brett came, excuse me. Yeah, Brett came to WCW. But even despite that, Hogan's like, yeah, man, that's money. We'll do that. But not next month. Right. <laughs> you know? That's a dirt sheet wrestling fan or dirt sheet booker of the year move. Um, it wouldn't have been a long-term strategic move. Uh, let's go to Two Count Kyle, who asks, hey, Eric, in the time of all this tribalism in wrestling, it's good to be positive because it's a great time for wrestling fans. With that said, can you tell me something that AEW does better than anyone else and something that WWE does better than anyone else and what they could learn from each other? I've said from day one that I prefer AEW's production values. Now, you can't compare in terms of, oh, I just compared it. To me, when I look at AEW and the way they're producing show, the values of that show, production values, I prefer it. It's not too glossy. It's not too pretty. It's perfectly flawed. Mm. What a great way to say it. You like you like that a should be a T-shirt, Kaufman. Perfectly, perfectly flawed. flawed. You like um, a little bit of roughness around the edges, a little, a little bit of uh, rawness, kind of still shining through there. I you guess. know why? Why? Here's the why of it, and it make it's because how it makes me feel. Mm. I feel like I'm in the arena because when you're in the arena, you see the warts and the pimples and the acne scars, and you know you see all that, and. When a little bit of that, just the rawness of it and the lack of absolute perfection, it makes me subconsciously feel like I'm there. And that's the beauty of being live. Why? Yeah, live programming. I started that trend, by the way, in wrestling, folks. I was the first weekly live professional wrestling show in modern history and major cable and prime time. And now everybody does it. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> but one of the advantages in being live is that it 
allows the audience to experience that product in a way that they actually feel like they're there. That's why I, that was the reason that I went live in the first place. I went, oh, Raw's tape, we're going to be live head to head. Because, and I, I explained it to my staff, and this is going to sound crude, but when I said we're going live every week, because that was a big commitment, by the way. Live is more expensive. The economies of scale, to get into the weeds a little bit, the economies of scale work in your favor when you're doing a tape show, right? Because you can tape two shows for basically the price of one. Once you get the crew there, the talent's there, you're paying the talents anyway, you've got to pay for a venue. Why not do two shows in the same night as opposed to one? Because it means that hour, those two hours are going to cost you half as much each, right? Because you're spreading the cost out over two episodes as opposed to putting it all on one. So when I decided to go live, in addition to satellite time and all the other things that come with it, it was probably 50 to 75% more expensive than the way we'd been doing it previously. But I used to, you know, when people say, hey, yeah, but that's going to be expensive. And I would say, yes, but Flea's fucking live is more interesting than most things on tape. <laughs> so we're going to go live. <laughs> and and now you hear people talking about media values and all that. One of the strongest positions that WWE has and AEW have is that they are one of the only, other than sports and news, live shows on television. Well, guess who started that? Y'all welcome. Thank you. Perfect. <laughs> uh, no need to stand. So let me let me finish the question. So yeah. AEW, I prefer their production values. And by the way, since Mike Mansuri got on board, and I put Mike Mansuri over, he used to work for with Kevin Dunn at WWE. He's now executive producer, I think. I don't know what his title is at AEW. Mike is an incredibly talented individual that I think, in my opinion, long term, again. I think Mike Mansuri was the best acquisition that Tony Khan has made to date, including talent. I think Mike Mansuri has the potential of having more of a positive influence on the AEW television product than any one single piece of talent going forward. Mm, that that's, said, saying that's saying a lot, my friend. It is. And Mike, because Mike gets it, you know, high production values is one thing. But when you shoot, when you produce a show like WWE does, and this is my, you know, I guess negative comment, it's my opinion. It's too pretty. I don't feel like I'm in the arena. When I watch AEW, I feel like I can get up and go to the concession stand, take a leak and get some popcorn. When I watch WWE, I feel like I'm in a movie theater. Right. I don't feel like I'm there. And I guess it's, you know, whatever you like. I prefer WWE's production value. I think now that Mansuri is there, not to keep putting him over, but he he's, deserves it, and Tony for bringing him on, I think Mansuri will find the right balance so that you can increase the production value of the show. So people, the business-to-business -business side of the wrestling industry, meaning your networks and your advertisers, are going to look at your show and know that it's very professionally produced, but not to the extent that you feel like you're watching a Disney on Ice episode at, in a movie theater. It's it's the difference between seeing a band in an arena and seeing them at a small venue where it's, you know, much more personal 
and 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 just it's there. You're 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 not miles away. You're not looking over someone's shoulders and head and behind their phone as they're recording everything because they can't be in the moment. This is you know. I remember me and my friends were in a bar in Arizona years and years and years ago, and uh, a band came in that had just played uh, a concert for fifteen thousand people, and they had some drinks at the bar. And next thing you know, we're at this bar with about twelve people. And we're watching Billy Corrigan and a few others from the Smashing Pumpkins on stage jamming out after just doing a live show in an arena. Now we get this little private personal show that till this day is burned into my memory. I will never forget that moment, you know. So I, I think your your comparisons of the two and just that kind of dingy kind of dive bar feel that you have watching it sometimes. I agree with that. I, it, you lose yourself in the moment easier, I think. Right, Eric? Exactly, man. Exactly. It just allows you. This is all subconscious shit, right? I don't sit there and think about it. I feel it. My point. And it just, I think the AEW approach to production allows me to feel like I'm there. Mm. As opposed to making me feel like I'm just watching something in a movie theater, which means I'm disconnected from it. I don't have the same connection to it. But you're right, man. How many? I, I'm trying to think of the band as you were talking, but there's been a number of musicians that that I, I never really cared too much about, and then just for one reason or another, caught them live. Mm. Completely changes the way I feel about them now. You know, it's it's crazy. But yeah, like, lady, lady Lady Gaga was like that. Like I was never a huge fan of her music, but she came up to Howard uh, her first time, and all they had was a piano in the studio, and she just sat there at the piano and just played and sang. And and that's when I was like, oh my god, this this woman's amazing. She's it's, unbelievable. It's funny you say that because like I think it was yesterday. I don't know. You know, sometimes I go through my social media, whatever, and I'm. I'm Things pop up. Might, might have been on Instagram reels or something, whatever. I'm going through, I'm looking at dog videos and horse videos and baby goat videos because that's my thing. You know, if, if I'm looking to just kill some time in my head. And I'm, I'm going through, and there's certain people like I like, you know, and I've liked some of the stuff I've seen on Stern Show. And it just popped up. And it was Lady Gaga in the studio with Stern. And there was no piano. She just broke out into, you know, he asked her to sing something. And she just, I'm like, whoa, that's yeah. amazing. Because you, your expectation when you go to a concert, especially now with big names, is, you know, they're they're overproduced, right? It's lights. Sure. It's cool. I dig it. But it's about the presentation and the production value as much as it's about the music. But when you hear somebody break out, acapella like that they actually to me sound better than they do in a stage performance it's it's also you know you watch these like talent shows like america's got talent for example and when these singers come on their first audition is just them and a guitar right that's all it is but as they advance throughout the show they're putting other musicians with them and orchestras and by then you're like i don't even like this person anymore because that's not who they were. I want to hear the guy with a guitar with an amazing voice. That's all you need. That's all you need. It's like cooking. The less shit you put in it, the better it's going to taste. Isn't that right? the truth? Yeah. So. Hey, what's your, what's your favorite music competition show? 
Oh, I mean, I, I don't really watch them anymore. Um, you know, I, I'm a comic, so I liked American Idol for the gag reel for all the for all the horrible people that couldn't sing like me that that I, I liked watching. Uh, but AGT, when you know, when Howard was a judge for AGT, uh, I was working a lot down there um, for his for his station, getting interviews and talking to people and all kinds of stuff. So AGT was fun, but it was also like. America's got talent. So like I have a good friend who's a comic who's hilarious, made it to the finals and lost to a guy who trained, you know, poodles to jump through hoops. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know how you balance out that competition towards the end, you know, but but hey man, any any platform where people can get out there and showcase their talents, I'm all for it, man, you know. I like the voice and, and I like all of them. Voice is good. I, I like uh, um the voice we have a family friend, actually it's my daughter's best friend who is in charge of all the backup singers. Mm -hmm. And she, she actually travels with Blake Shelton and she's in his band and all that. And because of our relationship with her, she's been out here to Wyoming. She sang me the song. We were sitting around, we do this on a 4th of July. Typically we'll get everybody. We've been out partying all day long, went to the parade at seven o'clock in the morning caught our buzz by 10, you know, continued the process, ate our guts out all day long. So we're all pretty beat by the end of the 4th of July towards at night, but we all gather. I have a big fire pit out in front of my bunkhouse. Um, and we all sit around, we build a big bonfire. We just tell funny stories. It's fun. And Kara, who's my daughter's friend came out surprised me she and my daughter surprised me because my daughter said oh i can't make it this year and it would really depress me i was kind of sad brought a tear to my eye you know i don't like not being around my family on the fourth of july but i accepted it and then that evening of course they come blowing down the driveway big surprise anyway kara kara came out here with my with my daughter and we were sitting around the campfire it was a beautiful night and kara said you want me to sing a song I thought, wow, because I love her voice. Yeah. I love her voice. She's got an amazing voice. And I said, yeah, I love anything Stevie Nicks. And I said, how about Landslide? Because I love Landslide. She goes, I don't know the song. Let me pull it up. So she pulls up the lyrics. Or she pulls up the music. She listened to it once. And she pulls up the lyrics. And she sang Landslide a cappella um, at my fire pit on the 4th of July. And it was so beautiful. Kara Britz, look her up on social media. She's amazing talent, B-R-I-T-Z. Um, tell her I said hi. She's amazing talent. And it, it's, again, man, that moment, I'll never forget that moment. I, I, I brought tears to my eyes. It was so beautiful. I loved it. I had a buddy of mine out here invite me to a home poker game. This was like six, seven months ago, and, uh, and I won. That's why I haven't been invited back. But uh, I go to the poker game, and... You know, I'm in I'm in the South. I'm in Alabama now. I'm I'm a, I'm a Jew from New York. Uh, I don't know. You know, I'm trying to adapt. I'm I'm open minded. I'm I'm ready to rock. And all of a sudden, I hear this guy singing. He's playing a song, and it's just a guitar and him singing. And it sounds like folk music, but it's it's outlaw country, as they call it, which is very similar to folk music. It's mm -hmm. just guitar and and amazing lyrics. And I was instantly hooked within, within the first verse of this song. I go, who the hell is that? You hear a voice and you go, what is that? It stops you cold. 
the guy's name is uh, Tyler Childers, and I was new to Tyler Childers. He's, he's a pretty popular singer, uh, but I'm going to send you some of his stuff. It is it is amazing. I think you'll love it, love it. And for a Jew from New York to say he's in outlaw country, you know the guy's got to be good. Wow, I can't wait. Man, I am so excited about the Royal Rumble this past weekend. I love seeing Cody finally get his shot at the world title. It's been a long time coming. And how about Sami Zayn? Man, they have done that story right. They have taken their time. But I, too, said, oh, it's about time. And maybe you're thinking it's about time you get out of debt. Well, SaveWithConrad.com can help. You know, we've been talking about how I help people get out of apartments and into houses with little to no money down for a long time now. And of course we've beat the drum for a long time about how we can show you how to keep more of your own money, but I'm sure part of you are thinking, yeah, I don't know, man, maybe I'll just try my bank. I don't know if I can, I mean, am I really going to do my mortgage with the podcast guy? I get it. Go check out my reviews. Just see for yourself. It would mean a lot for me. If you would just go to conradreviews.com, uh, here's a, a five-star review we just received from uh, David. He says, Dan was very knowledgeable and always found ways to get things done when I was being complicated, very professional, but at the same time, personal to assure me of the process. Lord knows with my job and unexpected circumstances popping up, she always found a solution to put my mind at ease. That's what David told us as he left us a five-star review last week over in Felton, Pennsylvania. Here's a five-star review from someone who didn't even get a loan. Now pay close attention to this one left last week for Steve Patty. I contacted via social media for information. Quickly, I received a response on how to go about my inquiry. Afterwards, I received a phone call from a representative. Promptly within an hour, I got a phone call from Stephen. Stephen was extremely polite as we conversed about my particular situation. Stephen took some time to explain to me in detail my credit situation, as well as what is needed to raise it and other matters. I guess one could call it some counseling advice. What Steven said was exceptional and accurate pertaining to my credit situation. I will use the information Steven presented to me to own my own home within two years, if possible. Tremendous help Steven was. So there you go. From someone who didn't even use our services, we were not able to extend them a mortgage, but we said, hey, not yet, but here's how. You see, we don't believe in no. We want everyone to become homeowners. And I want to be clear, this is not a subprime lending company. Y'all, I don't know how that narrative gets started, but all we do down here at First Family Mortgage is Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, and VA. In 2023, there are no magic bullets in the mortgage business. It's simply a matter of how do you treat people? And a lot of these banks and credit unions, they won't even talk to you unless you have a 700 credit score. We just don't think that's the way you handle people. Our reviews reflect that. Our A-plus rating with the BBB reflects that. We want to be your mortgage advisor for life, and we can't help you until we talk to you. And by the way, it's free. There's no cost. There's no obligation. Why not have a conversation with us? See where you are right now. Tell us about your short-term and your long-term goals and see if we can help you save some money. We're routinely helping our podcast listeners get rid of their credit card debt, get a lower monthly payment, and skip their next two payments. And you can do it too right now. If you haven't already, you won't have to make your February or your March payment. You're done until April 1st. And come April 1st, you're going to have a cheaper monthly payment. At SaveWithConrad.com, NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Seriously, SaveWithConrad.com. Get a quick quote. You'd be glad you did. Or hey, shoot me an email. Conrad at savewithconrad.com. 
or give me a call toll free 888-425-0105 save with conrad.com yeah um speaking of uh people moving around and coming to your town gavin has a question for you planning a late summer vacation in wyoming what are some hidden gems a family of uh of three with a four-year-old should make a point to get to and then he has a wrestling question as well but i'll, I'll let you answer that one first yeah i mean with a four-year-old that's a little tough right because they don't really understand where they're at have no appreciation for it and short attention spans right so that that's going to be a little bit of a challenge but so ditch the kid i think is what eric's saying yeah no, no i'm not saying that at all but look yellowstone is right here yeah. you know it's it's 42 miles down the road from my house i literally can look out my window up into the valley and see the mountains in yellowstone and there's so many cool things to see and experience there and so right off the bat that's a good trip even with a four-year-old Mm-hmm. But you come to Cody, you know, there's a, there's a nightly rodeo, you know, every night of the week, starting June 1st throughout the entire summer. And it's fun. It's a great experience. It'll, it'll make you feel something that you didn't expect to feel if you've never been to a small town rodeo because it's kids, it's family, it's, you know, little kids, six years old out there riding the horses around in a barrel race. And it, it just makes you feel so good because it's a slice of America that's really hard to find right now. And to experience that, even if it's for a night, you'll be glad you did. There's an amazing museum here, the, the Museum of the West. It's actually five muse- or four museums all under one roof. It would take you three days to get through it. But it's the Natural History Museum. There's the Plains Indian Museum, which is, I think, fascinating that, that you can see so much about the history and, and the life of the Plains Indians. Um, you have the Buffalo Bill Museum. Um, you have the, Win- I think it's the Win- Winchester Gun Museum there, which is just a, a massive collection that includes the evolution of firearms and weapons dating back to cavemen, right? Wow. It's just, there's so much, there's the Remington Art Museum. You know, Remington was a famous uh, wildlife artist and Western artist. There's a museum here under that roof of Western art from by artists from all walks of life and all, all eras. Fascinating. So there's that. There's river rafting. Might not recommend it for a four-year-old unless you can tie them to you. Uh, <laughs> but I've t- I took my kids when I brought my kids out here when they were little, um, before we built the house, like in 91 or ni- 91, they were, very, I think my daughter was not too much older than four or five. And we took them up horseback riding up into the mountains. Fascinating experience. And my kids grew up loving horses as a result of that. So there's a lot of things that you can do. You go up into Red Lodge, Montana, which is only about 60 miles from here. Beautiful, small little town up in the mountains. Great restaurants, shops, shopping. It's just a ton here. You go to Bozeman, hour and a half, two hours from here. That's the Yellowstone television series kind of main mm-hmm. set, not far away. There's a lot you could do here, man. You can drop the kid off at uh, Uncle Bischoff's and you and the wife go make some mistakes. You know what I'm saying? Depending on the day, that could work out too. I love being around kids. (laughs) Uh, His follow-up question. In the WCW era, were there any matches you look back at now that seems surreal from a talent standpoint? Sting and Warrior versus Brett and Hogan always felt like a fever dream to me, says Gavin. Yeah, there were some real misses there as well that were just bizarre and it seemed like a fever dream i get that but to me you know anytime i go back and i watch 
matches in the cruiserweight division with Eddie or Chris or Dean, uh, Chris Jericho, um, a lot of the luchadors. I, you know, occasionally Conrad and I will cover a show and I have to go back and watch something that I probably have never seen before, you know, because I was there live and didn't go back and watch it at home. It was on to the next show. So every once in a while when we do these, you know, way back so that I have to go back and watch something that I haven't seen since 1996 or seven or eight or whatever. I go back and I see some matches that to me seem surreal. They're so fantastic and so cutting edge in so many ways for that time that it blows me away. Uh, we have Nick Devaney has a question. Um, in an interview with Jim Cornette, Greg Gagne made the claim that in 1990, he and Vern were working on a deal with WGN that would have saved the AWA and had even convinced Hulk Hogan to leave Vince and come back there. But when Hulk pulled out at the last minute, it killed the deal and the company. Were you aware of this WGN deal? Once again, Greg Gagne is lying through his teeth. Mm. That's a, and it's a stupid lie to tell, right? Because it's a, it's too easy to disprove. <laughs> right. It's too easy to go. All right, let me give Hulk a call and see what he has to say or whatever. It's such a bullshit. And he didn't need to do that. There was um, a lot of conversations between WGN and Vern. I'm trying to remember the name of the guy that Vern was close to. He's a very famous guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll think of it hopefully before the show, but Vern did have a very close relationship with WGN and Vern was attempting desperately by 1990 because I was there and I sat with Vern and talked about it, um, desperately trying to find a way to make AWA work. Um, But it had nothing to do with Hulk Hogan. And for Vern to say it's Hulk Hogan's fault that this deal didn't happen and we could have saved AWA except for Hulk Hogan, that's Greg's way of blaming somebody else for something that he and Vern couldn't achieve. It's not true. Now, is there a kernel of truth in that maybe Vern picked up the phone and said, hey, Terry, there's a chance. And perhaps Hulk didn't say, go to hell, Vern. Do I think that there would have been a conversation there? Possibly. Do I think there's any chance in hell that, you know, Hulk had any intentions of leaving WWE and going back to the guy that he knew was going to go out of business anyway? Common sense. Anybody with a modicum of common sense would be able to poke holes in that nonsense from Greg Gagne. And again, the truth is better than a lie. The truth was, yeah, there was some great communication and there were some positive indications that something might happen, but they ultimately between Vern and GN just couldn't figure out a a, a way to make it work. That's not a failure, but to throw Hulk Hogan's name into it is a way of deferring responsibility or making it seem like Greg was smart enough you know, to actually be able to put this deal together, but Hulk Hogan wouldn't play ball. It was was right there. It was right there. I had it all lined up. It's so typical of Greg. Anytime somebody says, according to Greg Gunny, back in whatever date, he did this. It's like, oh, here it comes. What else, you know, (laughs) does Greg deserve all the credit for and none of the responsibility for? (laughs) Uh, Curtis Snyder 
Uh, he says, rewatching some early Nitro episodes where yourself and Mongo would constantly rip on the WWF, but Bobby Heenan would never say anything and would even sometimes change the subject. Do you think he had a certain gratitude toward Vince that he wouldn't say anything bad? And was, uh, and was there ever a conversation about that with you and him? Um, no. You know, I never said, hey, Bobby, jump on board. Come on, rip the WWE along with us. No, I would never do that. I never talked to Bobby about it. I never thought about it beyond the fact that Bobby was the type of professional that didn't feel comfortable for whatever reason. And I would have never asked him to do things that he wasn't comfortable doing. I assumed it was out of respect, out of loyalty, or maybe even because you can't be in the wrestling business without being a little bit cynical. The fact that Bobby might want to be able to go back there someday. And that was the case with a lot of guys, by the way, that was not unusual. There are a lot of guys that end up coming to WCW because, you know, in the wrestling business, nothing's really forever for very few people. Maybe if you're an undertaker, you know, or, or whatever, but you know, all these guys wanted to keep plan B available and a lot of them were not comfortable with it, but I assumed that that was the case with Bobby. Yeah. And uh, I was fine with that, by the way, I, I wouldn't expect sure. him to do otherwise. Yeah, you're, I mean, it wasn't a gang. You're not forcing him to do something he doesn't want to do. I mean, you you know, you're just happy to have a guy like Bobby Heenan there working for you at that point, I imagine. Yeah, and, and, and the other thing is, and surely you know this, man, unless you feel something, you, you're not going to perform it well. Right. And with Bobby, if I would have said, okay, Bobby, you have to do this, Bobby probably would have given it his best shot, but it wouldn't have been real, and it wouldn't have felt the same. Uh, well, well kind of like, kind of like promos in WWE. Yeah, you've <laughs> got to feel it. And Bobby would just his loyalty to the business in general, yeah. to perhaps Vince, or perhaps it was to himself knowing that he may need a plan B someday, whatever, for whatever any of those reasons, all of them are very valid to me. <clears throat> if I had to ask Bobby to do something he wasn't comfortable doing with, it wouldn't have been entertaining. Yeah, listen, some people play pool in life. Uh, guys like Heenan played nine ball. <laughs> you know they're <laughs> they're setting two three shots uh in advance smart Good analogy Good yeah analogy. uh hey guys double j jeff jarrett need to call a timeout real quick here i wanted to tell your listeners what i've been telling my world listeners for a while now it's about all the incredible things happening over on adfreeshows.com looking for classic royal rumble content adfreeshows has you covered first up Honorary DX member Kurt Angle watches back his favorite match of all time against Chris Benoit at Royal Rumble 2003. It wasn't real smooth. This was a choppy match. It was like we were working for moves. We were working for holds. It wasn't like it, it was really a clean match, but that's what made it so good. It was ugly and it was choppy and, and you know, it wasn't like a, a smooth move that you do all, you know, nice and clean all the way through or a smooth spot. This match was like gritty. And that's what yes. I love most about it. It was more of a fight than it was a wrestling match. For the first time ever, JR watches back the final WWF pay-per-view before he joined the company, the 1993 Royal Rumble, which featured many Hall of Famers and, well, Virgil. All right, next up, we got the man, the myth, the legend, JR. One and only Virgil. There he comes. 
meat sauce, the lonely uh, autograph table, the whole deal. That's him. Vir- Virgil's not known for many things. One of them, though, is his penis, allegedly. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be this Royal Rumble experience, but I could be wrong. If you're looking for interactive experiences, Ad-Free Show's members joined Hacksaw Jim Duggan live 35 years to the day of his historic win at the very first Royal Rumble. In wrestling, as going way back as a kid, I live in upstate New York, up by Vermont. My dad would bring me and my sisters to Madison Square Garden to watch uh, the circus. So I can only imagine uh, bring my dad, who was my best man, to pull up in front of Madison Square Garden and see Hacksaw Duggan versus Andre the Giant. Hey, that's just a small taste of what Ad-Free Shows has waiting for you, including a brand new perk, getting to join in on the live recordings of the shows with four levels to choose from. See for yourself why Ad-Free Shows is the best value in wrestling today sign up now at adfreeshows.com that's right sign up today at adfreeshows.com kevin dean gander he writes um when you took over wcw i'm sure you heard from many uh people regarding what would make wcw successful my question is when bill watts jim Cornette, ole anderson dusty rhodes or other old-timers gave you advice on what makes successful wrestling, how much credence did you lend them? And then the follow-up is, do you feel Tony Khan reacts similarly to your advice? So he's assuming that you kind of lashed lashed out or, or kind of snapped back at, at old-timers kind of giving you advice when you took over. Uh, how much of that I'm- is accurate? This gentleman asked a question, basically, right. of you you getting advice from the old timers, how you reacted to that advice, and do you see any similarities between, I guess, Tony Khan reacting to advice that you've given uh, him in AEW? Um, I didn't get a lot of it. You know, look, Vern Vern would call me once in a while, <clears throat> and we'd have brief conversations, but it is usually about talent. Like Vern Gagne called me while Brock Lesnar was still at the University of Minnesota. Um, still competing because Vern was very close to the University of Minnesota wrestling team. And Vern called me early on. He goes, man, you got to look at this guy, Brock Lesnar. You know, you got to look at this guy. And I always respected Vern's eye for talent. You would have to be a complete idiot not to. Mm-hmm. And even though I didn't have respect for Vern's approach to business at that time, because he, as I talked about earlier, he was kind of stuck in the seventies he knew what worked for him back then and refused to adapt to a new set of circumstances and cultures. So I, I, I would have never taken advice from Vern. I would have been polite about it out of respect when it came to business because the business had passed him by. Mm. But when it came to talent, Vern had that eye. He had a feel. And he was way more right than he was ever wrong. And you could go through a list and talk about the people, including Ric Flair, who started under Vern Gagne. People may or may not know that. Um, but other than Vern, I hired Jerry Jarrett. Right. I wanted to see what he had to bring to the table, so I hired him. I not only didn't react to him negatively like Tony Khan has a tendency to, I actually brought him in and paid him because I wanted to see what I could learn from him. 
Um, Bill Watts never gave me any advice. And I, when Bill Watts was running these WCW, I was preparing to quit. Right. Cause I had no comp. I, I knew he was an idiot. Right. When it, not an idiot. That's, that's harsh. I knew that he was, the business had passed him by too. There was nothing out of his mouth that I listened to while I worked under him that made me think this guy's got a lot to offer. Um, so, and, and he would not, not have called me when I was running WCW to give me any advice anyway. So I didn't get a lot of input. Um, I think Tony reacts more out of emotion. I think Tony wants, and I'm not saying this derisively. I think one of Tony's goals, and it's a good one to have, is to be, to reach a level of success in the industry that will allow him to be in a conversation with a Vince McMahon or Eric Bischoff, Nitro. He wants a, he wants to be recognized on the same level. And that's not a bad thing unless you're doing it at the expense of what it takes to get you to that level of success. So I think part of Tony's reactions is more emotional reaction based on the fact that he's not getting the kind of respect from me. And I know this is a fact. We have a mutual friend who got a, a text that basically said so. And I've heard it from more than one person. Um, my criticism not meant to be criticisms of Tony, the person I have some admiration for Tony, the person, particularly as of late, I think the person is a really good person. I think I disagree with his approach to the business. My disagreement and my advice is to quit striving to be the dirt sheet booker of the year and quit developing whatever creative strategy you have based on the reaction that you think you're going to get from the internet because you're not driven by the internet. You're driven by the television audience. The success or failure of your company, Tony, is not how well the dirt sheet universe and the internet wrestling community react to you. It's how well the general audience who may not even participate in that stuff react to you. The television audience is your market, not the dirt sheets, not Dave Meltzer, and not the universe of people because they're a very small universe of people compared to the totality of the audience that matter. But I think that rubs Tony the wrong way sometimes. And, and he reacts and I don't blame him. It's his feelings, his emotion. He should react however he wants to. But I think that's the difference. I did hire people in that were veterans. I did listen. I paid them for their, for their input. Um, some of it I thought was valuable. Some of it I didn't, but that's what you do when you're, learning on the job is surround yourself with people that don't necessarily agree with you because you're not going to learn anything from the, everybody that does agree with you. You're just going to do the same thing you're doing because they're going to agree with you because they want to be in your little universe and, and get that check every two weeks. That's fun, but it's not going to get you, not going to get you where you want to go. Do you think, and I know you don't, you know, know him personally and, and what he's thinking, but I, I get the feeling sometimes uh, watching AEW and and kind of hearing the be the behind the scenes and backstage stuff that there's a part of him that's almost i don't want to say afraid or maybe worried that taking advice from somebody and trying something new might actually be successful and then people kind of 
he goes down a notch in other people's eyes. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if I'm explaining it correctly. Oh, no, you, you, you're, I, I knew exactly what you were saying four syllables in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I got a pretty good gut is what you're telling me. Yeah, I think, and that's also human nature, unfortunately. It, it gets in the way, unfortunately. Ego, but, ego, uh, ego you know, is not your amigo, as uh, they say. If, if you're not confident enough and have enough of a vision to not want to surround yourself with people that may be more talented than you are in different aspects of whatever it is you're doing, whether it's building houses or running a wrestling company, if you're not willing to bring people in around you that are actually better than you and smarter than you, so you can not only access them as a resource to improve the quality of your product and ultimately get to that level where people are thinking you uh, about you in the same terms. And I'm not talking about your dirt sheet universe internet fans. I'm right. talking about the business community who can actually look at you and put you in that same category as WWE. But it's going to take surrounding yourself with people that are a lot better at what you do than you are. And I think one of, let me give you an example. Vince McMahon is many flaws as he may have as a human being. Some of the choices and decisions he made, we can, we can, everybody can look at that and they can judge and they can, you know, neglect to look at some of their own flaws <laughs> because it's much more comfortable picking on other people and judging other people. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But if, you, if you're one of those people that feels the need to do that and judge everything, WW, everything Vince McMahon has done over the last 40 years by that. Yeah. To each their own. But when I look at Vince and what he built, it's amazing in any way you, from any angle you want to look at it, it's nothing short of amazing that this little niche product that most people were afraid to even admit they watched. We were like one step above porn. It was like, well, it was like, you know, number eight is this, number nine is professional wrestling, number 10 is porn. You know, that's, that's the food chain that we existed on. We meaning the wrestling business until Vince McMahon came along and changed all that. One of the other things Vince did that I think better than anybody is surround himself who are smarter with people who are smarter and better than him in the areas where he needed that help. And that's evidenced by the fact he walked away and seamlessly that monster company, which is a very complicated company, that, that company not only didn't miss a beat, but actually improved. Stock went up, ratings went up, everything went up. And that's because Vince surrounded himself with people who were better at certain aspects of what he did than he was. And unless you're willing to do that, unless you're confident enough in yourself to do that, good luck. Yeah. Yeah, you're never going to grow unless you got people around you that help you grow you and know? not only and here's the other thing this is an important part and listen some of this is you know input that i've gotten from people that are very close to the situation bringing them in is one thing but actually listening and allowing them to take you in a direction you might not have otherwise gone taking that risk and what's the risk the risk is yeah maybe business-wise you may not agree with it but guess what you may be wrong right 
the larger percent of the audience may react to something that you just don't necessarily like react positively to something that just isn't necessarily your cup of tea. That goes back to not booking for yourself, not programming for yourself. Don't write for your own entertainment, write for your audience's entertainment. But in order to do that, you have to take the risk of bringing in people that are qualified people with a track record, maybe more experience, obviously more experience, and maybe even just better at certain things than you are and giving them enough rope to see if they're right. It's risky. Now, for someone who's insecure, why is that risky? Because it proves to you that you're not great at everything. That's right. That you got shit you can still learn. Exactly. And a lot of people don't want to do that. They're fearful of that. They don't want to look unqualified or, or not as important, you know, but that's all ego stuff, man. And, and it's also people that, that, you know, quote unquote, I do this for the love of the business. So why wouldn't you want the business to succeed? How many wrestlers uh, go a hundred percent into a gimmick or a storyline or whatever that they don't, they don't like, they hear it. They're not crazy about it. They don't think it's going to work out, but you know what? This is what you're offering me. This is what you're telling me you want me to do. I'm going to give it 110%. I'm going to listen to what you're telling me to do. And next thing you know, it works, right? So what, like listening is the magic word there that, that you said. Yep. Hey, and before we go, Mark Nelson has asked this question twice. He's one of our ad free show shows, family members. And, uh, he wants to know, I think I'm going to try to read this fast. It's hard for me to read it, but he wants to know, uh, we talked about the NWO and the promos. We, we, we did the black and white thing. How did Hogan Nash and Hall react to going from a, five to 12 minute promo down to 90 seconds. Initially it was like, what the hell, mm. you know, and what, what he's referring to, what Mark is referring to is when we did those black and white, quick cut kind of, I don't even know how you categorize them. It was real gritty look. And it was just real quick cuts as opposed to long winded promos with your announcer holding a microphone. Like we've seen since, I don't know, they invented dirt. Um, initially they were like, what the fuck are we doing? This is weird because they were so used to doing what they've always done, which is having Gene Oakland hold the mic and feed him the story and setting him up. And that was the, that was the format that everybody did by default. It was the only way to do it until we did it differently. And initially they were just, okay, we'll try this. And then they saw the finished product, flipped them the fuck out flip them out. And by the way, that wasn't my idea. This is what I mean about surrounding yourself with people who are better at some things than you are. That was Craig Leathers. Craig Leathers came up with that style because we went, I went to Craig as, you know, these guys are so you, first of all, every, each one of them were so used to being the focal point of the interview. That's all they were ever used to. Plus they were in a tag team situation, but that, yeah. For the most part, it was all about them. Now you've got three guys who are used to it being all about them and you're trying to get them to cut a promo. Yeah, <laughs> that was tough. But when they saw the finished product, that was not my idea. It was somebody else's idea. I posed the challenge to Craig. Craig took the challenge and said, hmm, I got an idea. Let's try this. And the idea that Craig Leathers came up with was like 10 times better than anything I could have ever figured out. 
That's what I mean about surrounding yourself with people who are better at you are than some things. And that promo, that style of promo, there's no one thing that was that made that idea successful, that creative successful. But that was one of them. The vibe, the feeling that that created was different than the feeling that everything else that people were used to seeing created. And boom, they liked it because of that. Good example. Good question. Thanks, Mark. Hope I answered it. Uh, yeah. And, and I mean, you answered so much today. Uh, you put in two hours worth of moonshine time today, and we appreciate that. Uh, God bless you. And uh, it, it, 83 weeks on YouTube, on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere. Highly recommend it. And then you got adfreeshows.com. I mean, you guys know I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but for you new people up here on YouTube, if you're a fan of wrestling, if you're a fan of of hearing the behind the scenes and the breakdowns of this amazing world that I've loved since I was a kid, adfreeshows.com is where you want to be. Uh, all your heroes are there. All the legends are there. And even Tony Schiavone's there. So <laughs> it's a great place to be. Uh, e. Bischoff on Twitter. Give him a follow. He's phenomenal. I'm Shalom Shuli on Twitter and uh, the Shuli Network on Patreon and YouTube. I'm building my own ad-free shows of, of comedians and uh, dick jokes. So if you're into those things, come on, check out my world. I'm going to uh, check it out. Not that I'm necessarily into dick jokes, but I, I, you know, the people you hang with are pretty funny people. So yeah, I, I love comedy. You, you do. You are a great, uh, 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 first of all, you're a great person to bounce jokes off of because if you can get Eric to laugh, he doesn't, he doesn't sell. <laughs> He's not Dave Silva, Dave Silva. You say poopy and he rolls on the ground and laughs. Uh, Eric, you got to earn it. And I like that about Eric. I like people that they don't bullshit with the laughs, no sympathy laughs there. Uh, so Eric, thank you for your time. Thank Julie, you. Thank you, man. You jumped in on the moment's notice. Our, 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 our leader in this battle of podcast supremacy, you know, Took a hit, got a little food poisoning, couldn't do it. He reached out to me. 15 minutes later, he calls back, says, Shuli's in. 20 minutes later, we're doing a show. You're the man. You can work on your feet. I love that. Love you guys, man. Thank you, everybody, for your support. Keep supporting our friends, and uh, be safe out there, and enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the football. We'll see you guys. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.